But this morning, we're going to begin a new sermon series on the book of Ruth. As I thought about what to consider after the book of Revelation, you know, that took us more than a year. And I sat there going, well, where do we go next? And I wanted to go back to an Old Testament book. I didn't know which one. And uh, the Lord kept putting Ruth on my mind. And so uh, finally, as often happens, I broke down and submitted to the Lord and did what he seemed to want. Uh, And this morning, we're going to start the book of Ruth. Ruth is a really fascinating book in a lot of ways. Uh, it's, It's kind of a Many have called it a biblical novella, right? A little, a little book, a little novel. It is very short. It's a brief little story of uh, a, you know, one family's suffering and pain leading to a romance, leading to a wedding day. Uh, it's a very brief book, but it's a very important book. Ruth is a book that details uh, some very specific things about the lineage of King David, for example. And above everything else, it's a book about how God uses the ordinary lives of small, ordinary people to accomplish his plan to save the world. It's a really fascinating book for those reasons, and so I think we'll greatly benefit from it over the next few weeks. This morning, we're going to start with Ruth chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see the setup of the problem of the book of Ruth, the, the setup of the great Uh, conflict and trouble that's going to take place in this book, leading to the resolution at the end. So let's give our attention, Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 5. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of God. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And may God now bless us as we consider his word this morning. I'm learning as a father that there are a lot of things fathers must do uh, for their families. Lots of things fathers need to do for their wives and children. Uh, But there's one thing in particular that we learn from this text that fathers ought never to do. Dads, if if you're in the room, you need to hear this. This is something you should never do for your family. You should never lead your family astray from the Lord expecting God's blessings to follow. You should never lead your family away from the Lord expecting that God's blessings will somehow follow. As we see the establishment of the book of Ruth and we start getting at the problem, the conflict that's going to be resolved, we see that this man, Elimelech, makes a decision. He makes a decision to try and solve a problem for his family, not by submitting himself and his family to the Lord, but by trying to run away from God and seek blessings elsewhere apart from God. And we learn from this first five verses that his 
sort of self-motivated attempt to provide for his family apart from God leads to greater suffering and, in fact, the destruction of his own life and the life of his two sons. His own decision, his own self-motivated, proud decision, foolish decision, leads not only to his death but the death of his sons and the bereavement of his wife and his two daughters-in-law. This is a big problem in the ancient world. In the ancient world, uh, to be a widow was a drastic problem. In our world today, we have all kinds of social security nets and safety nets in place, right, where widows are provided for. If your husband dies, it's, it's sad. Obviously, you're very sad, but you don't immediately become destitute anymore. Well, back in the ancient world, you did. And if you didn't have a son or a relative to provide for you, to be a widow in your old age was a death sentence. You were probably going to starve to death unless someone charitable enough would provide for you. So this is a big problem. It's a big problem. And yet we see that Elimelech was motivated to do it probably with good intentions. Let's consider the setting of this book of Ruth. As we, as we start looking at it, we get a picture of what is happening during the time period of this book and why it's so significant. Look with me again at verse 1. And let's first look at the troubles of the time in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth takes place during troubled times. First of all, the writer specifies for us, the story takes place in the days when the judges rule. You go back Right, the previous book, the book of Judges, he's saying this book, this story that I'm about to tell you takes place during those times. Well, what do we know about the time period of Judges? We know that it is a period of increasing immorality in Israel and increasing degradation and degeneration of the social and spiritual foundations of the people of God. Turn back with me, if you would, to the book of Judges and chapter 2. Look back real quick at Judges 2 and verse 11. The writer of Judges, probably Samuel, maybe someone else, but the writer of Judges gives us a description of the whole time period of the book. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but if, if you looked at Judges 2, verse 11 through uh, verse 19, you see the pattern that plays out. Verse 11, then the children of Israel, right after the death of Joshua, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, these false gods of the Canaanite peoples who they're supposed to be driving out. Instead, they stop worshiping the one true God and they start worshiping the false gods of the nations. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed gods, other gods, from among the gods of the people who were all around them. The period of Judges is a period of what we would call apostasy. That is, the people of God forsaking the one true God and going after other gods, committing idolatry, forsaking the Lord and seeking other gods. It's a period of increasing idolatry and apostasy. And we see that God responds every time. Look at verse 14. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. So the Israel goes astray. This is the pattern of the book of Judges. Israel goes astray from God. They forsake God and worship other false gods. God punishes them by putting them in bondage to the nations around them and making them defeated by their enemies. 
Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The people of God would cry out to God for salvation from their enemies, and God would answer by establishing a judge, a deliverer, usually a military-type person, to lead the people in conquering their enemies. But verse 17, yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. The Lord would raise up a judge, but look at verse 19. It came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. The book of Judges is a time frame where increasingly uh, there's periods of, of brief little respites, right? If we had sort of a graph going, what you're noticing is there's kind of a rocky go where sometimes the people are faithful, sometimes they come back to the Lord, but overall the trend is increasing degradation, increasing immorality. And you see this even in the judges, right? You start with good, godly judges, men like Othniel and Ehud. By the end of the book of Judges, you have men like Jephthah who sacrifices his own daughter in a human sacrifice. You have judges like Samson, who commits sexual immorality and seeks other pagan women. By the end of the book of Judges, the people of Israel are so corrupt that they've become even worse than the nations that God drove out before them. The book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, takes place during that time period. It's a troubling time. And we see that the spiritual unbelief, the apostasy and idolatry of God's people has led to a punishment from God in the book of Ruth. If you're back in the book of Ruth, go back to Ruth chapter 1 and look again at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Natural disasters are not always uh, directly a punishment from God. We live in a, a fallen world where sometimes bad things just happen. But the reality is that in the period of Judges, famine is almost certainly a punishment from God. God had warned his people in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that if they went astray from him, he would put a curse on their land. He would shut up the sky like an iron ceiling. It would not rain and it would not provide food for them. So the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, is taking place in a time when the people of God have gone astray, been unfaithful to the Lord, and the Lord is sending a punishment against them to wake them up and try to bring them back to himself. And that's where Elimelech and his family come in. We read that Elimelech hatches his own solution to solve this problem. Elimelech sees the problem of the famine and he thinks he knows what ought to be done. He chooses to forsake the land of promise, to forsake the God of his fathers, to take his family out of the land, back across the river of Jordan into the land of Moab. Now, you and I, most of us, are not Jews, and certainly none of us are ancient Near Eastern Jews. Uh, but you have to understand that for the Israelites, the Moabites uh, is sort of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. The Israelites and the Moabites, they have a shared relationship. The Moabites are descended from Abraham's nephew Lot, and of course the Israelites descending from Abraham's son Jacob, uh, or Isaac, I'm sorry, Isaac and Jacob. But they have been at war and at odds with each other all throughout their history. When Israel was trying to get out of Egypt and go through the nations and enter the promised land, 
The Moabite king Balak, in particular, opposed them and hired a prophet to try and curse them. You can go read about it in Numbers 24. That's where you get the uh, prophet Balaam, hired by the Moabite king Balak to try and curse Israel. Numbers 25, having failed to curse Israel, the Moabite women go into the camps and lead the Israelite men to commit sexual immorality and to start worshiping the Moabite god Chemosh. So already we see that Moabite women are often troubling to the people of Israel. How surprising is it then that the, the hero of the book of Ruth is going to be a Moabite woman? But we see that when Elimelech goes into the land of Moab, he is in fact choosing to dwell among the enemies of his God and of his people. And the whole scene drips with this bitter irony. Names are often very important in the Bible. We don't put a lot of stock in what our names mean anymore as English-speaking Americans. But back in the day, you put a lot of emphasis on what your name meant for your child. Elimelech is a name that means, my God, Eli, Melech is king. My God is king is Elimelech's name, and he chooses instead to leave his king's land and go live in the land of his king's enemies. Bethlehem means house of bread, and there's no bread there. You have to leave the house of bread to go try to find bread somewhere else among the enemies of your God and the enemies of your people. Elimelech's decision here reveals the foolishness and the faithlessness of his heart. See, God had told the people what to do if punishment came on them, right? God told the people what to do if his curse of famine came on them. He said, come back to me. You can go read about it in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verses 9 and 10. God said, look, if you'll come back to me with all your heart and with all your soul, I will bless you. I'll remove the curse and I'll bless you again. Repentance is the answer to God's punishment, but Elimelech thinks he knows better than what God said. He says, no, no, we're not going to repent for our sins. We're not going to come back to the Lord. In fact, we're going to run further away from God. And you see how disastrous that result was. It's very common for sinners to try and escape the consequences of their sin, but not to try and put their sins to death. I hope you understand that, friends. That there is a world of difference between running away from and trying to escape the consequences of your sin and trying to be rid of sin itself. Nobody wants to experience the consequences of their sin. You understand that, right? That there's not a single soul in hell today who is enjoying being there. There is nobody who will ever experience the eternal wrath and condemnation of God in hell who will be glad to be experiencing it. Nobody likes the consequences of their sin, but only through the Holy Spirit can you learn to hate sin itself. Elimelech, he wants to get away from sin's consequences. The famine that is brought on by the sins of his people, he says, we gotta get away from this, but I'm not gonna try and escape sin itself. I'm gonna try and hatch my own plan to solve the consequences of my sin. Commentator Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, commented on this text, it is an evidence of a discontented, distrustful, unstable spirit to be weary of the place in which God hath set us and to be for leaving it immediately whenever we meet with any uneasiness or inconvenience in it. It is folly, it's foolishness, to think of escaping that cross 
which being laid in our way, we ought to take up. There was a cross before Elimelech to take up. Cross of repentance, cross of coming back to the Lord and trusting in God again and leading his family in that. And he chose to forsake the cross and to try and run away from God. He tried to escape the suffering for his sin rather than simply confessing and repenting from sin itself. And you see that it does not work. What's the first thing that the writer tells us happens when Elimelech gets into the land of Moab? We're not told how long it is, but immediately in the verse, you're led to believe. They remain in the country of Moab, verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left, she and her two sons. He made a choice. He chose to flee from the cross, to flee from repentance, and to flee from God, and to try and solve the problem himself with his own plan, and instead you see that it only compounds the suffering. He fled from famine, and he only found death, and not just death for himself. Fathers, you need to know, you need to understand that your sin does not just affect you anymore. It affects your wife and your children, You cannot live in secret sin. You cannot live coddling sin in your life and expect that it will not trickle down and affect your family. Elimelech's sin not only killed himself, but it also killed his sons, and it left his wife and daughters-in-law bereaved and helpless. His sons took wives. They're married for 10 years, we were told, but they produced no children. Another sure sign of God's curse on their family. And I have no doubt that Elimelech had good intentions in this. I have no doubt that if you and I could jump in a time machine and go back to Elimelech's day and ask him, right, as he's leaving on the road out of Bethlehem and he's going to go cross the Jordan River, and you go ask him, Elimelech, what are you doing? What would he say? Do you think he would say, I'm fleeing from God and I'm trying to bring death on my family? Of course not. He's going to say, look, there's no food back there. There's nothing to eat. And I'm the provider. I've got to provide for my family. And there's food over here. And there's none back there. I've got to make the hard decision and bite the bullet to take my family back across the river, back into the land of Moab, because I'm the provider. I've got to do right by my family. Doesn't the Bible say if a man doesn't provide for his household, he's worse than an unbeliever? So surely that's what I've got to do. Not just speaking to fathers, perhaps especially to fathers in the room today, but to everyone. You will never find more blessing from God by going astray from God. You will never find more of God's blessings by unfaithfulness toward him. God never asked for your good intentions, friend. He does not need your good intentions. He asked for your obedience. He asked for your faithful submission to his will for your life. God never commanded you to figure it all out for yourself, fathers. He never told you to figure out how to provide for your family all by yourself. He told you to trust him, to lead your family in his ways, and to submit yourselves to him. See, dads, that's, that's the lie. I understand, right, maybe you're in a family like mine where uh, you're, the, you're the sole breadwinner, as we call it. But even still, Dad, you have to understand, you're not the provider for your family. 
God is the provider for your family. That's the lie that Elimelech believed and it led him astray. He thought, I have to provide for my family apart from God. You are not the provider for your family, Dad. God is the provider for your family, and the job he has provided you to do is one means of his provision for your household. But you cannot expect God's blessing on your family by leading them further astray from the Lord. You cannot expect that God will bless you more for having gone away from him and leading your family astray from him. I know that it's hard. We're living in a day increasingly where trying to encourage faithfulness in your wife and children is challenging because your kids have all kinds of things trying to pull them away from the Lord. And they seem so innocent, right? The sports on Sunday, the activities on Sunday, the the friends in the neighborhood that maybe you're dabbling in some things you wouldn't want your kids to do, the movies that those parents let their kids watch that you know are not right for your children to watch, but you want them to fit in, right? You don't want them to feel left out. You will never find more blessing for your family by going astray from God. That's the thing that Elimelech teaches us. God is the provider. And we'll see that in this book of Ruth. As as we go through this book, that's the lesson we're going to see. Because Elimelech is dead by this point. He's not the main character. In fact, you might even say Ruth's not the main character. Although he barely shows up in this book, in fact, God is the main character in this book of Ruth. And this is ultimately a story not of how Boaz provides for Ruth's needs. Right? I know all the memes out on the internet today about, you know, Christian women, find your Boaz type thing, right? And they're funny. You understand, though, that, that even the story of Ruth and Boaz is not the ultimate story of this book. This is ultimately a story of how God can take the most helpless people, a widow and her two daughters-in-law who are no longer of age to be married. The, the widow Naomi is not young enough to remarry again. And they're helpless. And apart from the mercy of God, they're going to be destitute and probably dead before too long. But this is a story of how God, through ordinary people, provides for their needs. And not just their needs, but ultimately the needs of the people. God is the provider in the book of Ruth. God is the one who will establish his people. God is the one who will fulfill his promises to bless his people. And not just in this book, but ultimately through his son, Jesus. And I know it just feels like I made a big Jesus jump there, right? Keith, you're jumping really far from the book of Ruth all the way to Jesus. But actually, I'm not. Ruth is an ancestress of Jesus Christ. You will find her in the genealogies. Go to Matthew. Go to Luke. You can find Ruth in the Bible as an ancestress of Jesus Christ himself. Because Ruth is going to ultimately be the great-grandmother of King David, And through King David, the Messiah is going to come. This is not just a story of how a romance through uh, Ruth and Boaz ended up providing for one family's needs. This is the story of how God meets that one family's needs to then provide a savior for his people. The the problem in the book of Judges is summarized three times in this time period. Uh, The writer says there was no king in Israel, but everyone did what was right in their own sight. Right? And you say, well, that sounds pretty good, right? No, no like federal government, basically. I could just do what I want. Well, God views that as a problem. 
And it's presented to you in the book of Judges as a great problem. And the answer is God's established king. And God is going to do that not just through David, because we know David even failed in the incident of Uriah the Hittite, but through his son Jesus, God will provide a savior, a provider, a deliverer for his people who will bring perfect blessing, not by running away from God. Jesus doesn't lead you astray, friend, the way Elimelech led his family astray. Jesus leads you into God's blessing through his own faithfulness. See, Elimelech is the head of his household. He ran away from the cross. He ran away from the suffering for sin. Jesus runs toward the cross. He runs toward the suffering, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. And through faithfulness to God, he brings about God's blessing, not just for him, but for you, his children. Elimelech tried to hatch his own schemes to bring about God's blessing. Jesus knew the only way to get the blessing is through faithfulness to God. In fact, at one point in John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, my food, the thing I eat, the thing I live on every single day, my food is to do the will of God who sent me and to finish his work. That's what he's about. He's not about running away from God. He's not about unfaithfulness. He says, the only thing I want to do day in and day out is the will of God who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus provides for you, friend, what no person could ever provide for you, even yourself. Elimelech tried to provide for his family apart from God. Jesus knows the only way to provide for your needs is through faithfulness to God. And through his faithfulness, you receive blessing. It is no coincidence that Bethlehem Judah, that in the book of Ruth is experiencing a famine, in a few hundred years' time, will be the birthplace of the bread of life. It is no coincidence that the place where Ruth's story will take place is the same place that our Savior will be born into the world. And it is no coincidence that that bread of life, Jesus himself will say to his followers, John 6, 27, do not labor for the food which perishes. Don't labor for the bread that perishes, but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. That's what Jesus does for us at the table this morning. He feeds us with the bread of life. He feeds you because that city Bethlehem that once had the famine is now the life spring, the source of this bread of life that feeds and nourishes the people of God, not just for this life, but forever. So as we come to the table, remember those promises of God. Remember what God does for you through your little ordinary life through the ordinary lives of his people, God provided a savior. And that savior feeds you with his own body and blood at the table this morning. Friends, let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for this good word. And Lord, thank you for this wonderful book. Father, we ask your blessing on us in the weeks ahead as we go through the book of Ruth. Help us to give our attention to it. And Lord, help us not just to learn interesting facts not just to learn more about how you worked in the lives of your people, but Lord, especially to see Jesus, to see our Savior, the bread of life, on full display for us. And Lord, help us by faith to follow him more closely as we experience the words of your book. Oh Lord, now as we come to the table, bless us to come by faith in the bread of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.